Hello, simpletons. You're What's listening up, patrons. <laughs> <laughs> Why does he always step on this? I thought we were walking. It's written right here on the paper. I don't follow scripts. <laughs> this is raw. This is live, Josh. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about preparing without hoarding and answer a bunch of your surprise questions. But first, let's read some more about Les. Ryan, we have an article here. That Let's I al- do it. Alluded to. Yeah, this is a uh, this is this is this will be good. This one's from the conversation, which is a online publication, and it is called "Supermarket Shortages Are Different This Time: mm. How to Respond and Avoid Panic." The irony of this, Ryan, is what we talked about in the minimal episode, right? Mm-hmm. It is inducing panic by by uh, talking about the panic. <laughs> Now, yeah. maybe maybe it's a little bit different here, but this one has to do with Australia, but I think you could fill in the blank for Australia and say New Zealand or Canada or the UK or United States or Brazil mm-hmm. or anywhere where there are supply chain issues, which seems to be virtually anywhere in the world, Japan, China, whatever. Yeah. Australia has experienced plenty of supermarket shortages since the COVID pandemic began. The emerging crisis is now a bit different. In 2020 and 2021, empty shelves were due to spikes in demand as shoppers responded to lockdowns by buying more toilet paper, pasta, and other consumables. This disrupted the usual rhythms of predictable supply chains. Apart from the first wave in March 2020, shortages were localized. Now, the shortages are due to supply-side problems and occurring almost nationally. As Omicron infections surge in every state apart from Western Australia, okay, so as the virus surges everywhere, basically, supply chains are being crippled by the sheer number of transport, distribution, and shop workers now sick or required to isolate. Mm. The major problem now is in transport and distribution. The Transport Workers Union says a third to half of Australia's truck drivers are off work. Wow. And you're noticing this in the United States as well. It may not be as much as half in the United States, but in some instances it could be, especially because it's winter here. Mm -hmm. And so there's all the common colds and, and flu season. And this is the time of year, especially in the northern climates, where people tend to get more sick. Yeah. And with all the sickness going around now, people are overly cautious. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but we're hyper cautious now. I know that you were you had a cold and missed two podcast episodes one week. The one we did with Peter Dorn and then we, you and I had one scheduled to talk about paper clutter. Right. But it, it'd be fine if it was just me and you. But if you came in here and got me sick, then I'm going to get Beck sick or Ella sick. And even if it's not COVID, it's a cold. No one wants that, right? right. And you don't get Jordan sick or Sean sick and Danny sick and Mallory sick. And all of a sudden, we're taking weeks off. Mm. Or if you're like one of the coffee shops that we talked about in the minimal episode, the Blue Bottle closed 11 locations. And all it took was a couple employees to get sick. And, and spread it. And and as soon as it spread, now they don't, even if not everyone's sick, let's say they, this location across the street probably has eight employees, mm-hmm. maybe. You and I have managed a bunch of retail stores. A store that size probably has something like eight to 10 employees. Yeah. If four of them are out, you might have to close the store. Yeah. Because you can't meet the demand. Right. 
if half of them are sick, now you're worried about the other half being sick. Mm. It seems like the safe thing might be, well, we'll just close this location for a period of time. We'll reallocate these, I hate this term, human resources. Mm. I don't like to think of people as resources. Yeah. That's kind of, ugh. Yeah. Um, but uh, you might have to reallocate the the headcount mm. to these other locations. And so you close these these stores. And that's a type of shortage because now the store isn't open. That's almost like the most dramatic effect of all of this is I think you're going to see more and more stores that are f- either closed or functionally closed at this point. Mm. And think about the panic that creates because early on uh, in the pandemic, shortly after that, we had there were the riots here mm. in Los Angeles, you'll recall, after mm-hmm. the the murder of, of George Floyd. Yeah. And people were understandably outraged by that and they started... Yeah, but then there were opportunists who piggybacked on that and started just destroying things right. and robbing places. Mm-hmm. And so what happened? The street we're on right now, in fact, most of the places around here boarded up. Yeah. And so they were functionally closed. That is a type of supply chain shortage. And I think all of these things lead to a sort of scarcity mindset and, and also actual scarcity. Actual scarcity leads to a heightened scarcity mindset Mm -hmm. and then we start to act irrationally panicking as we discussed earlier on the minimal episode is inherently irrational but when we behave irrationally quite often the people around us behave irrationally Mm. man you're making me panic just talking about this (laughs) good (laughs) well it's interesting because i do have to ask myself like what's appropriate i think you know that's what anyone has to consider when they start panic, when they read articles like this, when they see things happening on the news, they have to ask themselves like, well, what, what's appropriate for me? And do I already have what's like, I remember when, uh, you know, when the stores started getting empty in LA in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Mariah and I did not change what we were purchasing. In fact, we already had some things and I, yeah, I didn't go out and get threes of whatever we had just, you know, just out of panic. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, even as one of the minimalists, man, it it makes me worry. It makes me panic. Scarcity is one of the most, um, it's one of the biggest driving forces to, uh, our, our impulses and our actions is scarcity is a huge, huge motivator in the wrong ways. And, and the problem with the scarcity is it makes sense that it motivates us. If you have true scarcity, Mm -hmm. think about hunters hunter gatherers mm-hmm. societies if there's scarcity they have to do something that is outside the norm mm-hmm. now they don't necessarily panic but they behave in a way that is different from their norm if they no longer have access to meat or honey or root vegetables they may have to pick up and move to a different area with more resources mm-hmm. otherwise what they die because of scarcity. Yeah. The problem is we've mapped that on to our experience with toilet paper, yeah. with cookies, with alcohol, uh, with, oh my God, these golf clubs are 30% off right now. Mm. And if I don't, and they're only on sale to the end of day today, mm. I'm going to miss out if I don't buy these today. Yeah. I don't really need new golf clubs, but you know what? I feel like I'd really be. I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't buy these. We tell ourselves these stories. We are 
perceiving scarcity mm-hmm. where scarcity does not exist at all. Man, dude, this this is uh, happening with computer computers, computer chips, yes. graphics cards. Mm-hmm. Um, it blows my mind, man. How you know? Uh, a, it, it is hard to find them. Um, B, if you do find them, it's like you know they're marked up for four hundred percent. But what all this does actually is it gives opportunists um, this chance to really gouge people. Like I, yeah, I have seen different videos or memes on just people with stacks of these computer graphics cards Mm -hmm. and yeah, they buy them all up and then they sell them for 400% more. Yeah. And the problem is, is we feed into it. We do. I mean, the only reason they can do that is because we feed into it. Yeah. Mm. In fact, it's funny you're talking about feeding into it. I have a friend who's a realtor uh, up in Ventura County. And we were talking about housing up there. And uh, uh, we, were, we, were, we were looking at a house in Ojai uh, that was for sale. And what was funny is like, it was, I'll just use some round numbers so it's easy to, to do the math here. But let's say the house is $500,000 a year ago. It was like one point two million dollars now, and I just laughed at that because it was, mm-hmm. to me it was a junk house. Like it wasn't even worth five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, but now there is like this panic going on. Scarcity. Yeah, and I was talking to the realtor about it, and I'm like, I don't even you know like the house. I don't want to buy a house, whatever. But like, he's like, this will actually sell, and it will get multiple offers on it right now because mm-hmm. of the perceived scarcity. And so perceived scarcity leads to irrational behaviors like spending way more. You're essentially putting your future self in massive debt yeah. because of the panic that's going on right now. You are punishing your future self anytime you mm. panic by. Oh, you yeah. could tweet that podcast, Sean. And and when you when you punish yourself that way. You always pay for it. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes literally with interest, but you pay for it in anxiety, in regret, in misery, in, um, well, the regret is a really big one, right? And resentment too. But like you resent the decision that you made because you made it hastily. Yeah. And when you make a decision like that hastily, it comes back to bite you. Yeah. Because you realize like, oh, yeah. This house was overpriced. And yes, someone else was going to overpay for it. Mm -hmm. And so was it technically worth whatever someone was charging for? Yes, technically. Yeah. But only for... It's like, have you heard of Tulip Mania? No. Okay. You you remember this podcast, Sean, don't you? Tulip Mania. Are you familiar with this? Wait, what was this again? Tulip Mania. Tulip Mania. Yeah. And so... um, I don't know if I remember that. Malabama, can you Google Tulip Mania? Tell me the years about it. Like the flower? Yes. Yeah. In fact, if there's, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia page. I'm gonna have you read it because I could explain it. But reading like a Wikipedia page on tulip mania would be uh, a, a lot more a, a better explanation mm. because you start to realize this is this is the epitome of panic buy. I don't know why I didn't think about this for a more about less segment here because we're talking about preparing without hoarding. But sometimes we try to hoard something that is going to be completely irrelevant a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, right? Does this have anything to do with wooden shoes and windmills? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, Kind of. So I have the Wikipedia page in front of me. Tulip mania was a period during the Dutch Golden Age when contract 
prices for some bulbs of the recently introduced and fashionable tulip reached extraordinarily high levels, with the major acceleration starting in 1634 and then dramatically collapsing in February of 1637. It is generally considered to have been the first recorded speculative bubble or asset bubble in history. Yes. Oh, wow. So here's what happened. The people were speculating on tulips, the flowers. And so like, you go buy a bouquet of tulips and it's what, 10 bucks or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Well, at, at some point, I mean, if you look at the graphs on these things, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking like the equivalent of a thousand or $10,000. It's kind of like what's going on with all the crypto altcoin markets right now where it's this crazy speculation. Mm-hmm. And so people were essentially selling tulips for thousands of dollars because of perceived Scarcity. Now, listeners, don't go and buy a bunch of tulips now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can because they're not overpriced right now, but there was a moment, and you see this in all the altcoin markets now or NFTs or whatever, where something is worth dramatically more yeah. than what a sane person would pay for it outside of panicking. Did you see the guy who to show the ridiculousness of NFTs, which I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't get it all. I can't explain it. But long story short, he essentially found NFTs, copied them and then pasted them, put it on, on another website to show how easy it is to replicate. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. It, it, he, he took a picture of the Mona Lisa, basically, is, is the analogy there. Yeah, but right? he created an, an identical Mona Lisa. Right, yeah. right, and, and which which is something else you can do now as well, mm-hmm. right? You can, you could paint if you let's say you're a talented enough painter, you could paint a Mona Lisa that looks identical. In fact, frauds yeah. do this with yeah. In fact, there, there's a whole market in the expensive art world for there. There are people who are so good at creating fakes, even the experts can't tell now, right? Yeah, and then that. It makes you question, like, is the Mona Lisa actually even the Mona Lisa? Or is it, why is the Mona Lisa worth more Mm -hmm. than if Ryan Nicodemus could paint it exactly how it is Mm -hmm. flawlessly, then isn't it functionally the same thing? Shouldn't that be worth as much? Or let's say it's worth a billion dollars. Shouldn't each one now be worth half a billion dollars, right? Yeah. And of course not, because one has the origin story and it is the quote-unquote original mm-hmm. now the nft for those of you who don't know what we're talking about when we talk about nfts nfts are non-fungible tokens it is essentially the original of an electronic image or it's usually used for artwork so you can sell a original piece of art that's digital art yeah and then but you could also use that technology to sell moments as well Mm. like here's the moment where lebron james dunked on Kyrie irving Mm. and you own this three second gif of that moment you own Mm. the original you own the moment in a way Hmm. now to me it seems like all nonsense oh yeah but i also believe there's probably some uses of with the technology that makes a whole lot of sense because it's all backed by the blockchain. And so it helps you. And we're going to get into an, uh, uh, a blockchain Bitcoin conversation in the future. We'll bring TK on to talk about it because he really understands this stuff thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. And you and I don't. But I do believe there's probably some amazing uses for that technology. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, people are creating some serious panic buying for digital art that is art. We, we're not questioning whether or not it's art. Mm-hmm. 
but is uh, some JPEG worth $2 million? If someone's willing to pay $2 million, then the answer is yes. Yeah. But is that a type of panic buying? I would say certainly. And, and so, uh, whenever we are making these emotionally leveraged decisions, we tend to make decisions that we often regret. Think mm-hmm. back now to the, the 10 most expensive things you've purchased in your life. I'm 40 years old now, right? Mm-hmm. And so, homes would be on that list. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, pur- I've owned two homes in my life. And one of them I did regret because it was, it was an emotionally leveraged purchase. Oh, we should do this. Oh, 0% down. Oh, we can get in and out. We can start building it. Whatever it was, there was a lot of emotion that went into it. Oh, you're supposed to own a home. Yeah. I was 22 years old when I started building my first house. Mm. And because why? This is what you're supposed to do. Mm. And I made me make a poor decision that cost me a lot of money. In fact, when the market crashed in 2008, I lost a ton of money, like a third of the value of the house. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't have happened if I would have been more deliberate with that decision. Mm-hmm. Now, the second house I bought was a rental property and I paid cash for it and I made a very deliberate decision on it and, and had been looking for a long time. And I didn't regret that purchase. I eventually, I eventually ended up selling it last year because I just didn't want the burden. I didn't feel like a blessing to me. Even though I had a great tenant, I didn't really have to do much. Owning a home for me felt like a burden. Mm. For you, it's a blessing. You, yeah. you own a house that you rent out, an Airbnb, and, yeah. and um, that works well for you. And so one person's burden is another person's blessing and vice versa. Yeah. And also that can be true uh, at different times. This house is a blessing for you right now. For now, yeah. It could become a burden under other circumstances. Yeah. I'd say it's like 75% blessing, 25% burden. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Well, I mean, we were just there and um, there's a lot of wear and tear with the Airbnb. Uh, there's also, it's a new, it's a, it was a new build. Yeah. So it had some like settling and they're, they're there this week fixing some, some cracks and stuff, but. But yeah. take a, do you ever take a black light to it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just replaced all the bulbs with black light. Actually, <laughs> um, no, Ew. I uh, yeah, I, uh, I I I really enjoy it. Mariah and I will hopefully live there one day, and not even hopefully, like we'll get back to Montana one day. But um, but yeah, I uh, I I go there. I'm I'm glad that we have it. It's a it was a great investment. But yes, there is a maintenance thing <laughs> there's a level of maintenance just a base level level of maintenance let alone like the other things that come up yeah but yeah it's 25 percent burden 75 percent blessing for sure i was talking to my friend jamar in cincinnati he uh he owns a lot of properties he owns like yeah 15 20 properties something yeah. like that he just paid off i think his, his last one or second to last so he's, he's constantly like, trying to pay them off it's a property he's had for 20 years and he finally just paid it off. It's like an apartment complex, right? And um, it's a total, like, I think it's 99% blessing for him mm-hmm. because he likes doing the, all the stuff you're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah. And so what you're talking about is an expenditure of resources. And part of that's money. Of course, it's going to cost money for maintenance and upkeep and mm-hmm. repairs and all of these other things, mm-hmm. right? You also earn money from it. So you get a resource from it. 
But then also, there are other resources you get from it. It appreciates, theoretically, in value, not always, Mm -hmm. as I illustrated with my first home that I owned. Mm -hmm. But that's why I bought it. Oh, yeah, because they always go up in price, right? Mm. Well, no, except when they go down. Right. Or or when they stay the same. Oh, man. That's what happened to me. I had the same thing happen. Yes. Where I I bought that, you know, the 2,000 square foot home I talk about a lot, especially in in that talk. on uh on the less is now documentary but like yeah i got that and it was told to me like oh this housing housing prices have never been so low and i ended up eating a lot on that when i sold it five years later that's right yeah and so in addition to that though so the rental property you have right now there are other resources you have to worry about it, right? Mm-hmm. You have to think about it. Mm-hmm. You have to spend time coordinating with cleaning people or with property management. And even if it's negligible, let's say it's half an hour a month, that's still 30 minutes you have to spend that you could sp- be spending doing something else. Now, with someone like Jamar, I'm certain that's how he wants to spend those 30 minutes yeah. or 30 hours a week or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He's a teacher as well. So he mm-hmm. owns all these properties and he's a teacher, which is a job. He teaches like inner city kids who are really like, they give him the most troubled kids, mm-hmm. the ones who will like threaten other teachers. But he's Whoa. this big dude and he'll, he doesn't tolerate the nonsense, right? Yeah. And so... um he he does two things that he really enjoys. Mm-hmm. And if you put me in his shoes, I wouldn't enjoy either one of those things. Yeah. And that's where we really get caught up is thinking I'm supposed to, well, I'm supposed to own a house. I'm supposed to own rental properties. I'm supposed to own these things. And we make these emotional decisions. I saw someone else do it and he was successful. That will also make me successful. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. maybe it'll make you financially successful. But what are you giving up? Yeah. Are you giving up your sanity, your peace? Mm. Does this make you feel alive like it does for Jamar? Yeah. Because if it makes you feel alive, then wow, what a blessing, what a gift. Mm. If it makes you feel stressed out, what a burden. Yeah. I think that's so cool that, well, you know how Ramsey did the study with millionaires? Yes. And how a lot of them were teachers. Right. I love how he falls into that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he drives like an an old, I mean, he's a big dude too, but he, like, not fat, but like muscular. And he yeah. drives like a little, like, Plymouth. Uh, what are those little tiny Plymouths called? Oh. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. PT Cruiser. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and, uh, he, and he has a work, like, pickup truck as well with, like, not even a tape deck in it. It's like an AM radio. And <laughs> I don't even think it has AC. Like, he, he's, extremely frugal and mm-hmm. he enjoys that yeah not from an ego perspective like look how little i have mm-hmm. but like oh i don't want to spend money on this i'd rather spend that money yeah here i'd rather save the money i'd rather invest that in a property and he realized it so he's never making these emotional decisions because mm-hmm. it's not like he, he he actually makes the consideration hey would i rather have a thousand dollar AC unit in my car, or would I rather put that thousand dollars into one of my properties? Now, for me, I'd rather have the air conditioning in my car. Oh yeah. For him, nope. I would rather have this property. Yeah. Okay. Great. Neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. Mm-hmm. It is what is appropriate for you. Yeah. Alabama, do we have anything from our Patreon live stream? By the way, shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for being here. We've got some folks who watch this live. We always send you an email, the 
a few moments before we go live, often on Thursdays or on Tuesdays. And um, we just send you an email, let you know we're going live. You can always watch the live stream after the fact for a few days before we before we delete it as well. What do you got for us? We have a comment from Esther. She says, my nine-year-old son is watching this one. He says he's heard The Minimalists in the car and he likes it. Oh, It reminds me, Ryan, we were in New York recently. We were doing this um, uh, The Love People Use Things tour. And I was blown away by how many young people showed up at that event. Yeah. And, and I mean, obvious diversity. And I'm not talking about ethnic diversity. All that was certainly there as well. Yeah. But just diversity of people, opinions, thoughtfulness, etc. The first uh, person who came up, um, and this is uh, applicable to what we're talking about. The first person who came to the mic in New York was Matthew, yeah. a, a young trans boy. I think he's 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And he brought his mother there. Yeah. And we're talking about panic buying today. But when we're talking about panic buying, we're not actually talking about panic buying. We're not even talking about hoarding. We're not talking about preparing. We're always talking about the thing that's behind the thing. Mm. And I'm reminded of Matthew. And Matthew, if you're listening to this, thank you for coming to the event. Thank you for making it a... Uh, you really kicked it off with a heartfelt question. And and your mother was lovely as well. We, um, When he came with the mic, he was talking about... Um, well, I became a minimalist like a year ago or something. And, and I always wear, just wear black shirts now. My mom's always trying to... Yeah, convince me to wear. Maybe I should branch out and wear something different. Mm. And she would like to change that about me. And we essentially got to the point, and you know, Seth Godin was there, and TK was there, and we answered the question. But it made me think that the arguments aren't really about the black shirts. Right. It's your mother is still coping with dealing with this transition. She mm-hmm. was approaching it in a very loving way, but she was still trying to work through this the same way, Matthew, you are trying to work through this. You're trying to better understand yourself mm-hmm. and who you are. Mm-hmm. And your mother's also trying to better understand who you are. Yeah. And so it was kind of neat that they were like tangentially talking about this broader issue in their lives this broader thing they were trying to understand and they talked about it through these sort of surface things like Mm. hey we'll talk let's talk about your clothing to talk about your appearance and it was the way that actually allowed them to connect and then eventually get deeper by the end of that whole conversation when seth and and tk and and me and you we we had had that conversation with him by the end of it the mom came up and hugged matthew and said i want to be like him when i grow up yeah It was really sweet. It was a great event. Mm. By the way, uh, we're putting that out there for all of our, our true fans here on Patreon. You can have access to all 20 of those live events. We got anything else from that live stream right now? Yeah, there's one more question that ties in beautifully with what you were just talking about. This question comes from Tink. Uh, how do we... Did- Sorry. <laughs> Tink says, how do we deal with family trying to panic buy for us? I'm 23. And while my mother has accepted my minimalist ways, she has started panic buying necessities in large amounts and mailing them to me. Doss, mm. did you just have a visceral reaction? <laughs> <laughs> Podcast Sean, man, I, um, you know, it's funny because I do have a visceral reaction to that because I have in-laws and other relatives, especially my wife's side, who feel compelled to buy things for us from time to time. Mm. And I got some really wonderful, well, I got a wonderful perspective from Ryan years ago, then I still think about this all the time. As soon as someone gives you something, it is now yours to do what you want with it. Yeah. And the person giving it to you 
They want you to be happy. Yes. That's the whole reason why they gave it to you. Right. And and so they, they thought this would bring you some sort of utility. Mm-hmm. And if they were wrong, they don't want to be wrong. You can't prove them right by using a thing you don't get use out of. Right. That just makes you, that's like you're spinning your wheels, right? Mm-hmm. And so, Tink, if you have people giving you things you don't want or don't need, the first thing to do is, of course, set boundaries. That's what I'm going to do mm-hmm. by saying, hey, I already have everything I need. Thank you so much for offering. But do me a favor next time and ask before sending me something. Yeah, That's the one boundary. And and you can even ask them this way. Hey, would you be willing to ask me before you send me something in the future? And what are they going to say? No, sweetheart. Sorry. I'm going to send it to you anyway. And if you don't keep it, I'll hate you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Dude, my mom gave me a bidet for Christmas. Like a you hook it up to your toilet seat. Right. It was called the butler. B-U-T-T-L-E-R. <laughs> oh, it was it was punny. I'll tell you what. Um, I gave it to, to my friend I was staying with. Uh, he was really, him and his wife were looking for a bidet. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I'm like, my mom got me this. Like, we've been looking for one of those. Oh, cool. You can have this one. Right. So then my mom was like, hey, how's that? How's that? How's the butler working out? I'm like, I was like, oh, I'll have to ask Brian. I was like, uh, he he got really excited when I gave it to him. He really, him and his wife were looking for one and they're really excited to use it. And she was like, oh, that's great. Like she was totally fine with it. Yes. Um, But yeah, I mean, all that to say is two things. One, uh, you could probably find with all those panic buying things that you're getting sent, you could probably find other people who could use them. Um, so yeah, find someone to donate them to. And that's, that's really, I feel like the best thing you can do with a gift is you can pay it forward mm-hmm. and, and, and increase someone else's uh, contentment or ha- whatever it is, um, by, by finding the right home for it. Uh, the other thing too is, yeah, you know, um, there's no reason to lie. There's no reason to like, you know, uh, avoid, you know, talking about what happened to the gifts, like be honest with, with whoever gave you the gift. Cause that's really how you're going to hit the problem head on. And you can be honest without being overly blunt or mean. Yes. You can be compassionate. hundred percent. In fact, I think that's the key here. Tank is if you want to approach them in a way that is deescalating, mm-hmm. you show them compassion, thank them for the gesture, not, necessarily for the thing, but mm-hmm. uh, appreciate the fact that they are trying to help. Yeah, They just were unable to help because they didn't understand that this won't help. Now, here's the question for you. Can you help them better understand? And in what ways can you help them better understand? It's first by setting that boundary and saying, hey, you know what, guys? I would really appreciate Would you be willing to ask me before you send me something? Mm-hmm. And if I don't need it, I'll tell you that I don't need it, but if I do need something, I promise you I will tell you what I need. And if you can help me with that, wonderful. And all of a sudden now, because what? They want to help. And so instead of telling them no, no, no to these things, what can they help you with? Because Mm. if you have someone in your life who wants to help you, maybe it's not a physical good, but maybe they can buy something for you that you actually do need. Mm. maybe you all of a sudden you're spending more on groceries because of inflation recently. Mm -hmm. Hey, I could really use some gift cards to Ralph's or Whole Foods or whatever. That would really help me out. Yeah. Ryan, I wanted to talk to you before we get to some of our surprise questions today. Mm -hmm. 
how minimalists can responsibly prepare for emergencies, pandemics, supply chain shortages, and financial shock events. So I think all of these sort of fall under the same umbrella. They're a little bit different. And so we could talk about them generally here as they're all sort of emergencies. And what I've come to realize, and we didn't really talk about this when we did the emergency items episode, so I wanted to address it today, is if there's an emergency, the lighter you are, the more prepared you are to be nimble in an emergency. 100%. Unfortunately, we often think in order to be prepared, I need more. Mm. But sometimes that more, when it gets in the way, makes you less prepared. If I have too much gear, too many things to bring with me, if your go bag is 400 pounds, you can't get it out the front door. Yeah. And so 100% understanding what is enough, what is the appropriate amount for an emergency? What's the bare minimum Mm. for an emergency? That's why we have insurance. We have the minimum that we need, right? The emergency fund can help supplement that. Because if you have the minimum, then you're prepared for an emergency. Beyond that, you will supplement your emergency items along the way. Mm -hmm. Now, Ryan, I want to talk to you about financial shock events. We've been going around the the country and you've been giving this talk. And and one of the things you talk about when we're in a room, you you say that 60% of the people in the room will experience a financial shock event within the next yeah within the next 12 months 60 percent of the people listening to this or watching this will experience a financial shock event within the next 12 months so what constitutes as a financial shock event yeah typically i mean you're looking at several hundred or you know maybe even over a thousand dollar uh emergency that happens or yeah spontaneous thing that comes up water heater transmission goes out you get in a car accident you got to pay your deductible um yes that would be considered a financial shock event and so I think the way that a minimalist prepares is by having the minimum emergency fund. And and we talk about this with Dave Ramsey's baby steps Mm -hmm. and all that, but having a thousand dollar emergency fund up front is a great place to start. Eventually having six months worth of income saved up Mm -hmm. is really that safety net that you want to have. That is a fully funded emergency fund. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you'll have financial shock events that aren't that shocking to you. Yeah. By the way, they should never be shocking if 60% of the people listening to this will have a financial shock within the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. Ryan, check my math here, but that means like within the next 18 months, everyone will have a financial shock event. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it, it's, I mean, some people will have two, but on average, everyone will. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Um, well, another stat that I give in that talk is how almost 50% of us doesn't even have a month worth of income saved up. And I, it sounds like a lot and it is a lot, Yes, but um, that's pretty staggering. Mm-hmm. Uh, if 50% of people don't have a month of income saved up, that means that they lose their job. They're, they are in a true emergency. They are shocked. Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the stats that's in Love People Use Things is that I think it's 25% of six-figure earners can't come up with $2,000. Mm-hmm. Which $2,000 is a lot of money, but when you're making $150,000 a year. Right. Yeah. And, and so that tells me that it's just as much, if not more, a spending problem 
or a budgeting problem is mm. really what you know, a spending problem is, yes. is, is budgeting. Mm-hmm. We're living beyond our means mm-hmm. instead of minimalism, which is fundamentally about living within one's means mm. and being in. How do you do that? You're intentional with the resources you have. It's intentionalism is really what we're talking about here. If, if minimalism is too austere for you or you feel as though it's like a really radical conversation uh, around minimalism. Well, intentionalism works really well because you think about the decisions that you make and whenever you're panic buying, whenever you have a financial shock, oh my God, transmission goes out. What happens? Your blood pressure rises, Mm -hmm. right? Your water heater goes out. You start to feel that anxiety. I know I do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what amplifies that? If you don't have the resources to take care of it, it amplifies the shock, which amplifies the panic. And now we get into the spiral of poor decision-making because we're making decisions not intentionally. We're making it based on emotion. We're making it based on what other people are telling us in the moment. Mm -hmm. A salesperson, all your transmission is going to cost us. You're going to have to do this, this, and this. And oh, but by the way, your uh, brake light fluid is out. And all of a sudden, (laughs) you're spending way more money Mm -hmm. because you're acting on emotion. Mm. And I think that is especially true with when we see these empty shelves. We see the empty shelves. Now, I look at it because I don't have the same sort of panic buying anymore because I've, I always step back. But I look at the empty shelves as a signifier of panic in the culture writ large. Yeah, yeah. It's one person plus another person, plus another person. It becomes a mob mentality of of panic. And in a way, they're hoarding because they're not actually preparing. Right. I wanted to talk to you about preparing without hoarding mm-hmm. because that's what minimalists do. If you're intentional, you are prepared. Yeah. But you're also not hoarding. Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with where do you live, you know, in, in California, like what what are the emergencies that could happen? You know, you got, you have uh, forest fires, you have earthquakes. If you're in the Midwest, you've got tornadoes. If you're in Montana, you've got snow, you've got, um, forest fires. There's there as well. So yeah, it's considering where you're at. You don't want to prepare for earthquakes. If you're living in Montana, that wouldn't make much sense. Now you've got extra stuff that you probably don't need. Um, but yeah, uh, when I think about, emergency items for California. Like I have a friend who's actually a prepper. So I, I hired him for an hour to kind of talk to me about, um, what he would do now. He has way more (laughs) than I would ever have, but I was able to take his list, his recipe and just tweak some few ingredients. And the way I did it is I'm like, okay, if Mariah and I, um, you know, needed to like get up and go, I have a bag that would, you know, basically last, you know, it's got food in there and it's got um, a battery pack in there, things that would get us by for a couple of days. Right. Anything more than that, um, you know, personally, you can prepare as much as you want, but personally, like, I, I wouldn't prepare for more than two or three days because let's say you prepare for six months. If you have to prepare for six months and something happens to where that preparation comes in handy, it's going to go way beyond six months. Right. That's a great point. So, so if, if you know, if, uh, you're, if, if you are probably not individually going to be in lack, 
Um, so there's no reason for you to prepare yourself because if 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 the, you truly are in lack, then everyone else is in lack as well. And no matter how much you prepared, um, basically it has hit the fan at that point. And it doesn't matter what you have hoarded. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is some like, well, even like with the stuff that we have, there's a water filter. So yeah, water is important. Yes. I have a water filter that uh, would last a long time. Um, but like when it comes to food, when it comes to everything else, I mean, you can only prepare for so long. I think what you're saying here, there, there are basically three ways to prepare. Number one is identify what is enough for you and don't go beyond that baseline. Mm-hmm. Have those emergency items. Number two is, oh man, I'm blanking now. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, all right. So number one is having have, having the, the baseline of whatever you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is having a community of yes. people that that's the best preparation. Right. Right. And, be, and, and the reason it's the best preparation is because if you're working together, then you've prepared together. Mm-hmm. And if you understand you, you have enough already and the people around you, if you have a long-term emergency, a six month emergency, mm-hmm. you're going to need the help of someone beyond yourself. Most likely. Yeah. Because if it's six months, like you said, it's probably going to go much longer than six months if there's one of these catastrophic emergencies, mm-hmm. even if you do survive it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it, yeah. So yeah, I would, I would not worry about anything more than two or three days personally. But it, my prepper friend would be like, no, 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 you, you gotta, you gotta prep for X, you know, six months. I think that's what he's probably prepared for. Sure. Yeah. And. And if you want to do that, no one's telling you not to do it. Sure. If it feels like a burden, like that seems like a terrible burden to me. Right, exactly. And and because I would have to have more space that I have to pay for, I have to buy more things I have to pay for. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe it gives him peace of mind. If it gives him peace of mind, so be it. Yeah. Right? But just because it gives him peace of mind doesn't mean it's what I need to do as well. When right. we go wrong is when we prescribe that to everyone else. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear what Ryan has in his go bag and what I have in my go bag in case of emergency. We did a whole maximal episode about, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I forget the, the title of it, but it corresponds with the emergency items minimal episode. But we talked, we actually went through our entire go bags together mm-hmm. and talked about exactly what items we had in there. So go back and listen to that in the archives. Malabama, looks like we got uh, some surprise questions this week. How about we start with uh, our Ariane? Yeah, Ariane. It's fairly recent in history that Canadians like myself get to eat exotic fruits in the middle of winter, but I know this isn't natural. How can we readapt our eating habits to what's regionally accessible to us without feeling like we're missing out? Mm. This is this is something that's interesting because I was talking to Ben Greenfield about this, and quite often what he does, he tries to eat seasonally, like if berries are available for oh, yeah. a particular period of time, because that's how a lot of ancestral eating was done, right? Hunter-gatherers would eat whatever was available seasonally. Now, if you live close to the equator, mm-hmm. then a lot of the plants were available year-round. Mm-hmm. But if you live in northern Idaho or Spokane or something... Or in Canada, like like this gal here, then you may not have access all the time. Yeah. Although you do now at three a.m., you can get fresh, fresh, in quotes, tomatoes from mm. Walmart or whatever, right? Yeah. Even though they're actually from Ecuador or or something. Yeah. And but, so I I don't know that I fully understand the question here, Ryan, because 
Um, well, I mean, I can speak to the fear of missing out. I, to, to redo, you know, to to readapt your eating habits. I mean that that's like it's like asking how to quit sugar. You you, you have to quit, sh- and there's a period of time where you're like, oh man, I really want sugar, and then your body readjusts. Yeah. How do you readapt? I mean, wean yourself off. That's even not really a you know. It's to make a to make a habit a habit. You have to do it consistently. And it, this isn't the how they're looking for a how to when really it's a why to like, why do you want to readapt your eating habits? Right. And like, once you, once you understand some really solid reasons as to why, well, now you have the leverage, the emotional leverage to start making a habit, a habit. That's right. But I'll, I mean, I'll speak to the fear of missing out, man. Um, food is one of the biggest ones. Cause like, I'll be, you know, in, in a new city or new country or whatever. And there's like a restaurant there or, um, you know, maybe it's a cultural thing. Like, uh, Mariah and I, we had this, you know, awesome trip, um, where we went to a few different places in Europe and Malta was one of the places we went to. Rabbit is one of the delicacies there. Mm. So I'm like, Oh, I gotta have rabbit. And so uh-huh. then like when I went out on my way to get it, and it was okay. It was good. Yeah. But, um, because I'm in Malta and it's a delicacy, all of a sudden I have this fear of missing out. Like, well, I got to try it while I'm here. When, I'm, when else am I going to get able, you know, be able to try Maltese rabbit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have actually, uh, or you go to a really nice restaurant and I want to try one of everything. Mm. I mean, we were in this into Nashville when we, when we went out to dinner with, um, oh, with Josh Wolf and his wife. Yeah. Um, Bethany. Yeah, Bethany. And I wanted, we wanted, I wanted to try one of everything. In fact, they had like a sample meal, which was actually kind of cool because it was a decent size meal, like two people could share. And it was, you know, you could sample pretty much everything. But I have had to really put myself into a frame of mind when I find myself getting FOMO with food specifically. I have to be like, dude, you're missing out on 99.9999% of all the food. Yes. If you miss out, on you know point zero 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 one percent of it more, it's not going to affect my life that much at all. Yeah, at all, exactly. And because uh, a week from now, you're not going to be like, man, oh, I really wish I would have tried the lobster instead of the rabbit or whatever it yeah, is, right? And it's funny because I don't even like sit here and think there was a really good like tapas restaurant in Malta. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend traveling around the world to go there. Mm. There are plenty of tapas restaurants all around the world. Yeah, this one was very good. It was in Malta, but like, I've been to others in other cities, even in LA here, that are just as good or better. Yeah, um, I, I haven't, you know, uh, um, I haven't craved that Maltese rabbit, <laughs> you know. So, um, or nor would I be like, oh, you got to go to Malta, try the rabbit. Yeah, yeah. So, um, kind of recognizing that as well of like, yeah, I don't miss it. Yeah. I don't, I don't miss it, or you know, crave it again. The experience, um, it was a fine experience, but. The problem is, is when we try to have all the experiences, especially me, who's a seven on the Enneagram, who wants to have the fire hose of experiences. Yes. It ends up being a burden. Yeah. Quite often, I, I just say no. I'll give you an example. We were just flying back from, where were we? We were in Boston, mm-hmm. flying back to LA uh, and a direct flight. It was almost a seven, seven hour hours. flight. It was unbelievable. It's crazy. And there, they come by and ask, like, do you want the chicken or do you want the pasta? Mm-hmm. I said, no. Yeah. And at first she's like, well, what? those are the two options. I'm like, that's fine. There's a third option and it's to not eat. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, give me both. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take his. 
<laughs> and as soon as you find that ability to say no to that, mm-hmm. you've been set free. Yeah. And, you know, and like right now, I haven't, it's almost 2 p.m. when we're recording this. I haven't eaten since five o'clock yesterday. It's been 21 hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now, if this was the first time I'd ever done that, then I'd be really hungry and probably grouchy or whatever. But over time, as, as you have said, Ryan, it, it has become habitual where I intermittent fast 18 hours a day usually, and, yeah. and obviously sometimes more mm-hmm. uh, on podcasting days. And am I a little hungry right now? Yeah, sure. But it actually adds, what are the benefits of it? It adds great clarity for me to be fa- to record this while fasting. If I recorded this after eating, I don't know that I would have the the, the same clarity personally. And so what, I, what I've learned is that the ability to say no, it is a decision, right? Right. Decision just means to cut off. That same Latin root is, as incision, which means to cut off from something. Mm. And so when you are choosing between the chicken and the pasta on the plane, you're making an incision between right. the two mm-hmm. when you make your decision, right? But then we don't think there's also, there's always that third option. And that option is just to say no, because neither one of those were for me a hell yes. Mm. And so if it's not a hell yes, then I'm just going to say no to it. Yeah. Hey, I, one other thing I want to add that I think Marianne probably didn't say, but was kind of implied in her question is some of the people that are talking about trying to eat seasonally, their concern is environmental. They're um, concerned about the carbon emissions that are uh, added to the environment to ship those things from remote lands. That's a great point. So yeah. I think that's what part, she didn't state it, but I know a lot of people that are concerned about eating seasonally, right. that's one of their biggest concerns. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, there are huge environmental impacts to everything that we do. I mean, even if we're buying non-organic vegetables, right? The pesticides alone kill trillions and trillions of bugs. So if you care about killing life, then be careful with the fruit you eat because we kill lots and lots of life in order to eat fruit. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to mention the, yeah, the rodents when you're tilling Mm -hmm. up the... Yeah, the fields and yeah, yeah there's, there's the a lot deer of and the rabbits, all that. All yeah, of them. It's it's unbelievable. And so, yes, what a great point. If you're not eating locally, mm-hmm. it means you're also eating food that is being shipped from somewhere else in the country, somewhere mm-hmm. else on the continent, or somewhere mm-hmm. else in the world. And there are a lot of emissions that are uh, involved in that. Now, mm-hmm. you might you might be saying, "Is yeah, but it's just me. It's just yeah, but like we all contribute mm-hmm. to that, right?" Mm-hmm. And so. If it is your concern, you want to be a part of that, then eating locally is one way to reduce the carbon emissions. And if enough people eat locally, then we're not you know, bringing bananas from you know, wherever. Uh, Bananaville. Yes. <laughs> In Central America. <laughs> right. You know, I, I just had a thought, too, about um, trying everything on the menu. I can think back where there was just a couple ridiculous times where... I was like, oh, we'll get, you know, one of everything. And then I'll have leftovers. And like, you know, I'll eat le- and I, I love eating leftovers. But never have I been satisfied or not or grateful or glad that I got too much. Mm. Like anytime I've like, you know, had I've went ahead and went with that impulse. It's like, oh, I'm going to try everything. I've always regretted it. I've never been like, that was a good decision, Ryan. Every yeah. single time I've regretted it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, um, I will often 
order like the smallest version of a thing on the menu just to see if it's enough. And if it's not, mm. you can always order more of a thing. Yeah. You can never order less of it once it's arrived. Right. Like, hey, uh, actually, you know, I didn't want the large pizza. I want the medium. No, it's too late. It's already here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now you have so much that you regret. Yeah. That's a great point, man. Yeah. We have a question here from Dahlia. What are your thoughts on bulk food stores like Costco or Sam's Club? Burn them! <laughs> <laughs> it's a real gift and a curse, right? Yeah. Because what an amazing privilege that we have access to bulk supplies at a discount, yeah. right? And it makes sense. If you're buying in bulk, mm-hmm. you use less packaging, there's also less display in stores like that relative to like a Target or a, even a Walmart mm-hmm. where where they have giant pallets of things. And so they're able to sort of take the economy of it all and, and, and save you money. But also, it forces you to buy more of a product. Right. And if you don't need that much, then you're over-consuming. In a way, you're inadvertently hoarding excess stuff right now ryan and i have this rule called the just for win rule and it helps you identify it's different from the just in case rule both of these are in the minimalist rule book the minimalists.com slash rule book if you want to download it for free but the just for win rule says i buy certain things usually consumables and i will overbuy them because i know i'm going to use them so i'm buying them just for when i need them mm. and sam's club and Costco are great places to buy certain just for win items as long as I have enough space for them. Yeah. And so I don't want to buy a pallet of toilet paper. I don't have the space for a pallet of toilet paper. Right. But I do have enough space for a 24 pack of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. So I tend to buy a 24 pack or an 18 pack. And it's way more than I need today, hopefully. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I'm certain that I will use the kind that I use until we are low and then I'll buy another bulk supply again. But I have a boundary. It's whatever fits in the sink uh, underneath or in in my bathroom. (laughs) Keep your toilet paper in the sink? (laughs) (laughs) I understand. (laughs) (laughs) It's the worst place to keep it. It's really wet. It barely even works, man. It's terrible. (laughs) You think you just get wipes, right? Like, (laughs) I guess I shouldn't be buying so much. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, Mariah and I, uh, we don't shop at Costco because it's just the two of us. Yeah. But I know, you know, I know minimalist families that go to Costco because they have a whole family. So, like, it makes sense to buy in bulk. And so what's our perspective on it? Uh, it? It all depends. Yeah. But if you show up there and you make an impulse buys at a bulk food section, yeah, that's the worst thing, right? Because I don't even eat ramen noodles, but what a great deal. Yeah. Well, now you're buying an unhealthy thing that is actually doing a disservice to you. Mm-hmm. And now you're buying it, not just one of them and, and eating at one time, mm-hmm. you're buying a case of the unhealthy thing. Yeah. And so if you, it's forcing you to buy things that you wouldn't typically buy because it's quote on sale or mm-hmm. it is quote discounted, well, it's a hundred percent off. If you leave it on the shelf. Yeah. Dahlia, thanks for your question. Looks like we got one more question here from Asia. I want to be prepared for food shortages, but don't want to stockpile things I might not actually eat. How much and what kind of food should we keep on hand to be prepared without being wasteful or greedy? Tuna fish. All tuna fish yeah. all day. <laughs> or sardines. Oh, man, this is... Uh... Mm. 
I'm just, I, I, I want to be prepared for the food shortages, but don't want to stockpile things that might not actually eat. So if you're like allergic to tuna, which some people are, then you wouldn't want to stock stockpile tuna fish. Um, man, uh, my hoarder friend, this is what he does, man. He does. Um, it's funny. There was a Freudian slip there. You called him my hoarder friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's he is a hoarder. He's a prepper. <laughs> he's a prepper, but he's all, but he's a hoarder. Yeah. I mean, he's well, you're intentional. Right. He's not, yeah. yeah, he is an intentional hoarder. You're not going to the Jim Baker buckets with this. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um he's oh, an intentional sense. hoarder, aka prepper. <laughs> um, but he has uh he does like rice and beans. Like those are the bulk things that you can buy that'll last a really, really long time. Sure. And then you could do um, yeah, like different canned meats. I mean, uh you you were joking about tuna fish, but yeah. like that's that's what I have actually in my go bag. There's like yeah. four cans of tuna fish in there. F sardines. I yeah. the only reason I mean, and yeah, four cans of tuna fish should be fine. Mm-hmm. The reason I don't I don't buy I buy I have four cases of sardines. You and, eat them all the time. Yeah. And yeah. so I I'm able to eat through them. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're both something I use and I have enough for an emergency. So mm-hmm. I essentially buy them in bulk. I buy like four cases of them. Yeah. Tuna fish I don't eat in bulk because of the high mercury, mercury content. Yeah, right. But in an emergency, I'm not going to be too worried about a little bit of mercury that's in the tuna fish if you're starving. Yeah. But here's the thing. None of us, none of you listening to this, or virtually none of you, have been in one of these emergency situations where you yeah. needed prolonged food for any, uh, well, you, you, you needed stockpiles of food for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. And yet we're trying to prepare for everything that's never happened. And again, if you prepare with all this food, Isia, let's say you do six months of rice and beans. What happens after those six months? Right. And if you're in that situation where you need to stockpile six months worth of food, there's way worse problems. Get enough ammunition. You'll be fine. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with that. You just go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're worried about the wrong thing. Stockpile ammunition so you can go take other people's things. Yes. Did you you ever play Oregon Trail? (laughs) The only way to win that was to have enough medicine and ammunition, and then it, the game was like uneasy. At right? That point. Yeah. Oh, that is Don't true. Don't die of yeah. dysentery. Right. Yeah. And that was what the medicine was for. Mm. So if oh you had the medicine and the ammunition, you didn't need to mm. buy anything else. The That's wagon so wheel funny. didn't matter. Yeah, you're <laughs> I fine. Just imagine turn like a, a crisis. You're just going around at people's houses with a gun. <laughs> hey, I'm a, I'm a minimalist. Give me a toilet paper. I'm here to minimize your stuff. <laughs> uh, Oh, I love that that New Yorker, or yeah, I think it was New York or New York Times cartoon where it was uh, the, the two guys um, robbing this place, and like the cartoon was them like carrying out the last piece of furniture, and the owner was like in a in a chair tied up, and like the robbers looking back, and he's like, "This is your chance to start over. Don't ruin it." <laughs> <laughs> well, let's tie that back to to this question here and to this whole maximal episode, Ryan. This is your chance to start over. Mm-hmm. When you're thinking about preparing for an emergency, preparing without hoarding, you're talking about a clean slate. Mm. What do I need on top of that clean slate? Well, first, you have to actually get to the clean slate. Mm -hmm. You probably have too much stuff. You're probably prepared for too many things that are never going to happen. Mm. And if you've prepared for too many things, 
You're going to ha- be paralyzed with fear, with anxiety, with the inability to take action. It's like, Ryan, if you had a 400-pound go bag, mm. you're not going anywhere mm. with that go bag. You have to lighten the load if you want to be prepared for most things. Because being nimble and having a deep understanding of your ability to move, that gives you the freedom you need to go where you need to go in case of an emergency. Mm. Oh, you don't bu- want to trap yourself with your stuff yeah and i was gonna say oh by the way if you have all the stuff and there was a catastrophic collapse right you're a giant target now and like you said you don't have that nimbleness <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. but you have this giant horde and guess what now you're a target now everybody's coming for you mm. what a great point sean yeah. yeah man it's uh it's frightening to think that if there is a collapse we can't even your Hoarder, I mean, prepper friend, mm. prepper friend, he uh, he isn't prepared for everything because mm. you can't be prepared mm. for everything. Yeah. And yes, he might be a target and he probably welcomes that, right? <laughs> right, yeah. With, you know, he's got his yeah. uh, fully yeah. automatic weapons or whatever. Right? Yeah. And um, that that's fine. But I think most of us, we're trying to prepare for things. Mm-hmm. That are never going to happen. That are A, never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And if they do happen, they're never going to happen the way you think they're going to happen. That's the truth, Mm -hmm. man. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, imagine my my prepper friend, my intentional hoarding friend. Uh Let's say there's an earthquake and, you know, it splits right down the middle of his house and his house falls into it and his family aren't there. But now all of it's gone. Or, you know, if he's got to go somewhere. Yes. Yeah, you can't carry it all with you. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way... If you and I are real nimble, we both have go bags. We talked about that on the emergency items episode, but I can literally within 30 seconds, pick up my go bag, leave the house and I have everything I need for that emergency. Right? Yes. Now, let's say I was in your friend's shoes Mm -hmm. and there was a disaster that just sort of destroyed his home and he was unable to stay there. Mm -hmm. And as Sean has eloquently said, he's now become a target. Right. Well, he might try to start stockpiling. I've got to take some Mm -hmm. of my stockpile with me. Right. And it slows him down so much Mm -hmm. that he may not be able to get where he needs to go Mm -hmm. to be safe, to get out of the emergency. It may actually one's hoard may perpetuate the emergency that he was hoarding to try to prevent in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, at least for me, one of the things that gave me the greatest peace of mind with this and traveling, what you were saying about being nimble, traveling light, uh, was taking a survival course, uh, a land survival course and learning that pretty much everything you need in, if it was catastrophic, right? Mm. You can live off the land we have as a species for millions of years. That's right. It's out there. You know, you don't have to have all this stuff. If you learn basic survival skills, yeah. you're, I mean, if that's your purpose to survive, you're going to be okay. Yeah. We yeah. have as a species been for millions of years. Right. Somehow we've done it all this time without Costco. Well, <laughs> for most of our time. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the the main message is just get your shopping fart, fart <laughs> shopping cart <laughs> Full of cookies. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. I think you'll be prepared for any emergency. That's right. Patrons, live stream. Thank you so much. Patrons who listen to this after the fact, thank you for being here. I did, Ryan, on the minimal episode, we talked about the uh, that documentary for The Added Value, a man named Scott. And one thing I forgot to mention is how influential he was, uh, Kid Cudi. 
was on this whole generation that sort of came after us. Mm. You know, people who... What is that, Gen Z? No, I would say millennials, mostly millennials, because oh, okay. it's like people are a little bit older than, than Danny. Danny just turned 25, so yeah. people were probably uh, roughly Alabama's age. Yeah. Um, and because like Timothy Chalamet was in the documentary. He was one of the talking heads. Mm. Shia LaBeouf was in the documentary talking mm. about his influence. And mm. all of these different people who we see as really influential people were influenced by the music of this one man who, by the way, became famous off of MySpace. Mm. He uploaded a song to MySpace day and night. Mm. And it resonated with people in a way because people were like, oh my gosh, like this is emotionally raw. Mm. And I thought that tied in well with this episode since we're talking about quite often we become, we rub ourselves raw emotionally with, with all of this this panic. Yeah. And it creates this, um, this sort of mental, psychological frenzy mm. in our lives that creates a spiral of discontent and anxiety and you see that represented beautifully in, in his music. So if you get a chance, check out that documentary. Even if you're unfamiliar with Kid Cudi or his music, you can check out A Man Named Scott. And I think it's just a beautiful documentary, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much, patrons. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it